Section 9 of The Golden Slipper and Other Problems for Violet Strange. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Deborah Maddock. The Golden Slipper and Other Problems for Violet Strange by Anne Catherine Green. Section 9. Problem 6. The House of Clocks, Part 2 Another day passed, and she had not yet seen Miss Postlewaite. She was hoping each hour to be sent on some errand to that young lady's room, but no such opportunity was granted her. Once she ventured to ask the doctor, whose visits were now very frequent, what he thought of the young lady's condition but as this question was necessarily put in mrs postlewaite's presence the answer was naturally guarded and possibly not altogether frank our young lady is weaker he acknowledged much weaker he added with marked emphasis and his most professional air or she would be here instead of in her own room it grieves her not to be able to wait upon her generous benefactress. The word fell heavily. Had it been used as a test? Violet gave him a look, though she had much rather have turned her discriminating eye upon the face staring up at them from the pillow. Had the alarm expressed by others communicated itself at last to the physician? Was the charm which had held him subservient to the mother dissolving under the pitiable state of the child, and was he trying to aid the little detective nurse in her effort to sound the mystery of her condition? His look expressed benevolence, but he took care not to meet the gaze of the woman he had just lauded, possibly because that gaze was fixed upon him in a way to tax his moral courage. The silence which ensued was broken by Mrs. Postlewaite. "'She will live,' this poor Helena, how long? she asked with no break in her voice's wanton music. The doctor hesitated. Then, with a candor hardly to be expected from him, answered, I do not understand Miss Postlewaite's case. I should like, with your permission, to consult some New York physician. Indeed! A single word. But as it left this woman's thin lips, Violet recoiled, and perhaps the doctor did. Rage can speak in one word as well as in a dozen, and the rage which spoke in this one was of no common order, though it was quickly suppressed, as was all other show of feelings when she added, with a touch of her old charm, "'Of course you will do what you think is best. As you know, I never interfere with a doctor's decisions. But—' and here her natural ascendancy of tone and manner returned in all its potency. It would kill me to know that a stranger was approaching Helena's bedside. It would kill her. She's too sensitive to survive such a shock. Violet recalled the words worked with so much care by this young girl on a minute piece of linen. I do not want to die and watched the doctor's face for some sign of resolution. But embarrassment was all she saw there, and all she heard him say was the conventional reply. 
I'm doing all I can for her. We will wait another day and note the effect of my latest prescription. Another day? The deathly calm which overspread Mrs. Postlewaite's features as the word left the physician's lips warned Violet not to let another day go by without some action. But she made no remark, and, indeed, betrayed but little interest in anything beyond her own patient's condition. That seemed to occupy her wholly. With consummate art she gave the appearance of being under Mrs. Postlewaite's complete thrall, and watched with fascinated eyes every movement of the one unstricken finger which could do so much. This little detective of ours could be an excellent actor when she chose to make the old man speak. To force this conscious-stricken but rebellious soul to reveal what the clock forbade. How could it be done? This continued to be Violet's great problem. She pondered it so deeply during all the remainder of the day that a little pucker settled in her brow, which someone, I will not mention who, would have been pained to see. Mrs. Postlewaite, if she noticed it at all, probably ascribed it to her anxieties as nurse, for never had Violet been more assiduous in her attention. But Mrs. Postlewaite was no longer the woman she had been, and possibly never noted it at all. At five o'clock, Violet suddenly left the room. Slipping down into the lower hall, she went the round of the clocks herself, listening to every one. There was no perceptible difference in their tick. Satisfied of this, and that it was simply the old man's imagination which had supplied them each with a separate speech, she paused before the huge one at the foot of the stairs, the one whose dictate he had promised himself to follow, and with an eye upon its broad, staring dial, muttered wistfully, "'Oh, for an idea! For an idea!' Did this cumbrous relic of old-time precision turn traitor at this ingenuous plea? The dial continued to stare, the works to sing, but Violet's face suddenly lost its perplexity. With a wry look about her and a listening ear turned toward the stair-top, she stretched out her hand and pulled open the door, guarding the pendulum, and peered in at the works. "'smiling slyly to herself as she pushed it back into place "'and retreated up the stairs to the sick room. "'When the doctor came that night, "'she had a quiet word with him outside Mrs. Postlewaite's door. "'Was that why he was on hand when old Mr. Dunbar stole from his room "'to make his nightly circuit of the halls below? "'Something quite beyond the ordinary was in the good physician's mind.' for the look he cast at the old man was quite unlike any he had ever bestowed upon him before, and when he spoke it was to say with marked urgency, "'Our beautiful young lady will not live a week unless I get at the seat of her malady. Pray that I may be enabled to do so, Mr. Dunbar.' A blow to the aged man's heart, which called forth a feeble Yes, yes, followed by a wild stare, 
which imprinted itself upon the doctor's memory at the look of one hopelessly old who hears for the first time a distinct call from the grave which has been long awaiting him a solitary lamp stood at the lower hall as the old man picked his slow way down its small hesitating flame flared up as in a sudden gust then sank down flickering and fainting as if it too had heard a call which summoned it to extinction no other sign of life was visible anywhere sunk in twilight shadows the corridors branched away on either side no place in particular and serving to all appearances as many must have thought in days gone by as mere hiding places for clocks to listen to their united hum the old man paused looking at first a little distraught but settling at last into his usual self as he started forward upon his course did some whisper hitherto unheard warn him that it was the last time he would tread the weary round who can tell he was trembling very much with his task nearly completed he stepped out again into the main hall and crept rather than walked by to the one great clock to whose dictum he made it practice to listen to last chattering the accustomed words they say yes they are all saying yes now this one will say no he bent his stiff old back and laid his ear to the unresponsive wood but the time for no had passed it was yes 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 now and his straining ears took in the word he appeared to shrink when he stood and after a moment of anguished silence broke forth into a low wail amid those lamentations one could hear the time has come even the clock she loves best bids me speak oh arabella arabella in his despair he had not noticed that the pendulum hung motionless or that the hand stood at rest on the dial if he had he might have waited long enough to have seen the careful opening of the great clock's tall door and the stepping forth of the little lady who had played so deftly upon his superstition he was wandering the corridors like a hopeless child when a gentle hand fell on his arm and a soft voice whispered in his ear you have a story to tell will you tell it to me it may save miss postlewaite's life did he understand would he respond if he did or would the shock of her appeal restore him to a sense of the danger attending disloyalty for a moment she doubted the wisdom of this startling measure then she saw that he had passed the point of surprise and that stranger as she was she had but to lead the way for him to follow tell his story and die there was no light in the drawing-room when they entered but old mr dunbar did not seem to mind that indeed he seemed to have lost all consciousness of present surroundings he was even oblivious of her this became quite evident when the lamp 
in, flaring up again in the hall, gave a momentary glimpse of his crouching, half-kneeling figure. In the pleading gesture of his trembling, outreached arms, Violet beheld an appeal, not to herself, but to some phantom of his imagination, and when he spoke, as he presently did, it was with the freedom of one whom speech is life's last boon and the ear of the listener quite forgotten in the passion of confession long suppressed. "'She has never loved me,' he began, "'but I have always loved her. For me no other woman has existed. Though I was sixty-five years of age when I first saw her, and had long given up the idea that there lived a woman who could sway me from my even life and fixed lines of duty.' Sixty-five, and she a youthful bride. Was there ever such folly? Happily, I realized it from the first and piled ashes on my hidden flame. Perhaps that is why I adore her to this day and only give her over to reprobation because fate is stronger than my age, stronger even than my love. She is not a good woman, but I might have been a good man if I had never known the sin which drew a line of isolation around her and within which I and only I have stood with her in silent companionship. What was this sin, and in what did it have its beginning? I think its beginning was in the passion she had for her husband, it was not the everyday passion of her sex in this land of equable affections, but one of foreign fierceness, jealousy and insatiable demand. Yet he was a very ordinary man. I was once his tutor, and I know. She came to know it, too, when... But, but am I rushing on too fast? I, I have much to tell before I reach that point. From the first, I was in their confidence. Not that either he or she put me there, but that I lived with them and was always around and could not help seeing and hearing what went on between them. Why, he continued to want me in the house and at his table when I could no longer be of service to him, I have never known. Possibly habit explains it all. He was accustomed to my presence, and so was she, so accustomed they hardly noticed it. It happened one night when, after a little attempt at conversations, he threw down the book he had caught up and addressed her by name, said without a glance my way, and quite as if he were alone with her. Arabella, there is something I ought to tell you. I have tried to find the courage to do so many times before now, but I have always failed. Tonight, I must. And then he made his great disclosure, how, unknown to his friends and the world, he was a widower when he married her, and the father of a living child. With some women this might have passed with a moment of regret, and some possible contempt for his silence, but not so with her. She rose to her feet, I can see her yet, and for a moment stood facing him in the still, overpowering manner of 
one who feels the icy pang of hate enter where love has been. Never was a moment more charged. I could not breathe while it lasted, and when at last she spoke, it was with an, with an impetuosity of concentrated passion, hardly less dreadful than her silence had been. You, a father, a father already, she cried, all her sweetness swallowed up in unforgiving wrath. You whom I expect to make so happy with a child, I curse you and your brat. I... He strove to placate her to explain, but rage has no ears, and before I realized my own position, the scene had become openly temptuous. That her child should be second to another woman seemed to awaken demon instincts within her. When he ventured to hint that his little girl needed a mother's care, her irony bit like corroding acid. He became speechless before it, and had not a protest to raise when she declared that the secret he had kept so long and so successfully he must continue to keep to his dying day, that the child he had failed to own in his first wife's lifetime should remain disowned in hers, and, if possible, be forgotten. She should never give the girl a thought, nor acknowledge her in any way. She was fury embodied, but the fury was of that grand order which allures rather than repels. As I felt myself succumbing to its fascination and beheld how he was weakening under it even more perceptively than myself, I started from my chair and sought to glide away before I should hear him utter a fatal acquiescence. But the movement I made unfortunately drew her attention to me, and after an instant of silent contemplation of my distracted countenance, Frank said, as though he were the elder by the forty years which separated us, "'You have listened to Mrs. Postlewaite's wishes. You will respect them, of course.' "'That was all. He knew, and she knew, that I was to be trusted.' but neither of them has ever known why. A month later her child came, and was welcomed as though it was the first to bear his name. It was a boy, and the satisfaction was so great that I looked to see the old affection revive, but it had been cleft at the root, and nothing could restore it to life. They loved the child, I have never seen evidence of greater parental passion than they both displayed, but there their feelings stopped. Towards each other they were cold. They did not even unite in worship of their treasure. They gloated over him and planned for him, but always apart. He was a child in a thousand, and as he developed the mother especially, nursed all her energies for the purpose of ensuring for him a future commiserate with his talent. Never a very conscientious woman, and alive to the advantage of wealth as demonstrated by the power wielded by her rich brother-in-law, she associated all the boy's prospects with money 
great money, such money as Andrew had accumulated, and now had at his disposal for his natural heirs. Hence came her great temptation, a temptation to which she yielded, to the lasting trouble of us all. Of this I must now make confession, though it kills me to do so, and will soon kill her. The deeds of the past do not remain buried, however deep we dig their graves, but rise in an awful resurrection when we are old, old. Silence, then a tremulous renewal of his painful speech. Violet held her breath to listen. Possibly the doctor, hidden in the darkest corner of the room, did so also. I never knew how she became acquainted with the terms of her brother-in-law's will. He certainly never confided them in her, and as certainly the lawyer who drew up the document never did, but that she was well aware of its tenor is as positive a fact as that I am the most wretched man alive today. Otherwise, why the darksome deed into which she was betrayed when both the brothers lay dying amongst strangers of a dreadful accident? I was witness to that deed. I had accompanied her on her hurried ride, was at her side when she entered the inn where the two postal weights lay. I was always at her side in great joy or in great trouble though she professed no affection for me and gave me but scanty thanks. During our ride she had been silent, and I had not disturbed that silence. I had much to think of. Should we find him living, or should we find him dead? If dead, would it sever the relations between us two? Would I ever ride with her again? When I was not dwelling on this theme, I was thinking of the parting look she gave her boy, a look which had some strange promise in it. What had that look meant, and why did my flesh creep and my mind hover between dread and a fearsome curiosity when I recalled it? Alas, there was reason for all these sensations, as I was soon to learn." We found the inn seething with terror, and in the facts worse than had been represented in the telegram. Her husband was dying. She had come just in time to witness the end. This they told her before she had taken off her veil. If they had wanted, if they had been given a full glimpse of her face, but it was hidden, and I could only judge of the nature of her emotions by the stern way in which she held herself. "'Take me to him,' was the quiet command with which she met the disclosure, then before any of them could move. "'And his brother, Mr. Andrew Postlewaite. Is he fatally injured, too?' The reply was unequivocal. The doctors were uncertain which of the two would pass away first. You must remember that at this time I was ignorant of the rich man's will, 
and consequently of how the fate of a poor child of whom I had heard only one mention hung in the balance at that awful moment. But in the breathlessness which seized Mrs. Postlewaite at this sentence of double death, I realized from my knowledge of her that something more than grief was at prey upon her impenetrable heart, and shuddered to the core of my being when she repeated in that voice which was so terrible because so expressionless. Take me to them. They were lying in one room, her husband nearest the door, the other in a small alcove some ten feet away. Both were unconscious. Both were surrounded by groups of frightened attendants who fell back as she approached. A doctor stood at the bed head of her husband, but as her eye met his, he stepped aside with a shake of a head and left the place empty for her. The action was significant. I saw that she understood what it meant, and with constricted heart watched her as she bent over the dying man and gazed into his wide open eyes already sightless and staring. Calculation was in her look and calculation only. And calculation or something equally unintelligible sent her next glance in the direction of his brother. What was in her mind? I could understand her indifference to Frank, even at the crisis of his fate, but not the interest she showed in Andrew. It was an absorbing one, altering her whole expression. I no longer knew her for my dear young madam, and the jealousy I had never felt towards Frank rose to frantic resentment in my breast as I beheld what very likely might be a tardy recognition of the other's well-known passion, forced into disclosure by the exigencies of the moment. Alarmed by the strength of my feelings, and fearing an equal disclosure on my own part, I sought for a refuge from all eyes and found it in a little balcony opening out at my right. Onto this balcony I stepped, and I found myself face to face with a starlit heaven. Had I only been content with my isolation and the splendor of the spectacle spread out before me. But no, I must look back upon that bed and the solitary woman standing beside it. I must watch the settling of her body into rigidity as a voice rose from beside the other Postlewaite, saying, It's a matter of minutes now. And then, and then the slow creeping of her hand to her husband's mouth, the outspreading of her palm across the livid lips, it steadily clinging there, smothering the feeble gasps of one already moribund until the quivering form grew still, and Frank Postlewaite lay dead before my eyes. I saw, and made no outcry, 
but she did, bringing the doctor back to her side with the startled exclamation, Dead! I thought he had an hour's life left in him, and now he has passed before his brother. I thought it hate, the murderous impulse of a woman who sees her enemy at her mercy and can no longer restrain the passion of her long-cherished antagonism. And while something within me rebelled at the act, I could not betray her. Though silence made a murderer of me too, I could not. Her spell was upon me as in another instant it was upon everyone else in the room. No suspicion of one so self-repressed in her sadness disturbed the universal sympathy. And encouraged by this blindness of the crowd, I vowed within myself never to reveal her secret. The man was dead, or as good as dead, when she touched him, and now that her hate was expended, she could grow gentle and good. I knew the worthlessness of this hope as well as my misconception of her motive. When Frank's child by another wife returned to my memory, and Bella's sin stood exposed. But only to myself, I alone knew that the fortune now wholly hers, and in consequence her boys, had been won by a crime. That if her hand had fallen in comfort on her husband's forehead instead of in pressure on his mouth, he would have outlived his brother long enough to have become owner of his millions, in which case a rightful portion would have been insured to his daughter, now left a penniless waif. The thought made my hair rise as the proceedings over. I faced her and made my first and last effort to rid my conscience of this new and intolerable burden. But the woman I had known and loved was no longer before me. The crown had touched her brows, and her charm, which had been mainly sexual up to this hour, had merged into an intellectual force with which few men's mentality could cope. Mine yielded at once to it. From the first instant I knew that a slavery of spirit as well as of heart was henceforth to be mine. She did not wait for me to speak. She had assumed the dictator's attitude at once. "'I know what you're thinking,' she said. "'And it is a subject you may dismiss at once from your mind. Mr. Postlewaite's child, by his first wife, is coming to live with us. I have expressed my wishes in this regard to my lawyer, and there is nothing left to be said.' You, with your closed mouth and dependable nature, are to remain here as before and occupy the same position toward my boy that you did towards his father. We shall move soon into a larger house, and the nature of our duties will be changed, and the scope greatly increased. But I know that you can be trusted to enlarge with them and meet every requirement I shall see fit to make." Do not try to express your thanks. I see them in your face. Did she? Or just the last feeble struggle my conscience was making to break the bonds in which she held me and win back my own respect? I shall never know. For she left me on completion of the speech 
not to resume the subject then or ever. But though I succumbed outwardly to her demands, I had not passed the point where inner conflict ends and peace begins. Her recognition of Helena and her reception into the family calmed me for a while and gave me hope that all would yet be well. But I had never sounded the full bitterness of Madame's morbid heart, well as I thought I knew it. The hatred she had felt from the first for her husband's child ripened into frenzied dislike when she found her a living image of the mother whose picture she had come across among Frank's personal effects. To win a tear from those meek eyes instead of a smile to the sensitive lips was her daily play. She seemed to exult in the joy of impressing upon the girl by how little she had missed a great fortune, and I had often thought, much as I tried to keep my mind from all extravagant and unnecessary fancies, that half of the money she spent in beautifying this house and maintaining art industries and even great charitable institutions was spent with the base purpose of demonstrating to this child the power of immense wealth and in what ways she might expect to see her little brother expend the millions in which she had been denied all share. I was so sure of this that one night while I was winding up the clocks with which Mrs. Postlewaite and her fondness for old timepieces has filled the house, I stopped to look at the little figure toiling so wearily upstairs to bed without a mother's kiss. There was an appeal in the small wistful face which smote my hard old heart, and possibly a tear welled up in my own eye when I turned back to my duty. Was that why I felt the hand of providence upon me, when in my halt before the one clock to which any superstitious interest was attached, the great one at the foot of the stairs, I saw that it had stopped, and at the minute of all minutes in our wretched lives, four minutes past two, the hour, the minute in which Frank Postlewaite had gasped his last under the pressure of his wife's hand. I knew it, the exact minute, I mean, because providence meant that I should know it. There had been a clock on the mantelpiece of the hotel room where he and his brother had died, and I had seen her glance steal toward it at the instant she withdrew her palm from her husband's lips. The stare of that dial and the position of its hands had lived still in my mind as I believed it did in hers. Four minutes past two. How came our old timepieces here to stop at the exact moment on a day when duty was making its last demand upon me to remember Frank's unhappy child? There was no one to answer, but as I looked and looked, I felt the impulse of the moment strengthen into purpose to leave those hands undisturbed in their silent accusation. She might see, and, moved by the coincidence, tremble at her treatment of Helena. But if this happened, if she saw and trembled, she gave no sign. The works were started up by some other hand, and the incident passed. 
but it left me with an idea that the clock soon had a way of stopping, and always at that one instant of time. She was forced at length to notice it, and I remember on occasion when she stood stock still with her eyes on those hands, and failed to find the banister with her hand, though she groped for it in her frantic need for support. But no command came from her to remove the worn-out piece and soon its tricks and every lesser things were forgotten in the crushing calamity which befell us in the sickness and death of little Richard. Oh, those days and nights! And oh, the face of the mother when the doctors told her that the case was hopeless! I asked myself then, and I have asked myself a hundred times since, which of all the emotions I saw pictured there bit the deepest, and made the most lasting impression on her guilty heart? Was it remorse? If so, she showed no change in her attitude towards Helena, unless it was by an added bitterness. The sweetest looks and gentlest ways of Frank's young daughter could not win against a hate sharpened by disappointment. Useless for me to hope for it. Release from the remorse of years was not to come in that way. As I realized this, I grew desperate and resorted again to the old trick of stopping the clock at the fatal hour. This time, her guilty heart responded. She acknowledged the stab and let all her miseries appear. But how? In a way to wring my heart almost to madness and not benefit the child at all. She had her first stroke that night. I had made her a helpless invalid. That was eight years ago, and since then what? Stagnation. She lived with her memories. And I with mine. Helena only had a right to hope, and hope perhaps she did, till... Is that the great clock talking? Listen! They all talk, but I heed only one. What does it say? Tell, tell, tell. Does it think I will be silent now when I come to my own guilt? That I will seek to hide my weakness when I could not hide her sin? Explain, it was Violet speaking, and her tone was stern in its command. Of what guilt do you speak? Not of guilt towards Helena, you pitied her too much. But I pitied my dear Madam Moore. It was that which affected me and drew me into crime against my will. Besides, I did not know, not at first, what was in the little bowl of curds and cream I carried to the girl each day. She had eaten them in her stepmother's room and under her stepmother's eye as long as she had strength to pass from room to room, and how was I to guess that it was not wholesome? Because she failed in health from day to day? Was not my dear madam failing in health also? And was there poison in her cup? Innocent at that time, why am I not innocent now? Because, oh, I will tell it all, as though... At the bar of God, I will tell all the secrets of that day. She was sitting with her hand 
trembling on the tray from which I had just lifted the bowl she had bid me carry to Helena. I had seen her so a hundred times before, but not with that just look in her eyes or just that air of desolation in her stony figure. Something made me speak, something made me ask if she were not quite so well as usual, and something made her reply with the dreadful truth that the doctor had given her just two months more to live. My fright and mad anguish stupefied me, for I was not prepared for this, no, not at all, and unconsciously I stared down at the ball I held, unable to breathe or move or even meet her look. As usual, she misinterpreted my emotion. Why do you stand like that? I heard her say in a tone of great irritation. And why do you stare into that bowl? Do you think I mean to leave that child to walk these halls after I am carried out of them forever? Do you measure my hate by such a petty yardstick as that? I tell you that I would rot above ground rather than enter it before she did. I had believed I knew this woman. But what soul ever knows another's? What soul ever knows itself? Bella, I cried, the first time I had ever presumed to address her so intimately. Would you poison the girl? And from sheer weakness my fingers lost their clutch, and the bowl fell to the floor, breaking into a dozen pieces. For a minute she stared down at these from her tray, and then she remarked very low and very quietly, Another bowl, Humphrey, and fresh curds from the kitchen. I will do the seasoning. The doses are too small to be skipped. You won't? I had shaken my head. But you will. It will not be the first time you've gone down the hall with this mixture. But that was before I knew I began. And now you do. You will go just the same. Then, as I stood, hesitating, a thousand memories overwhelming me in an instant, she added in a voice to tear the heart, Do not make me hate the only being left in this world who understands and loves me. She was a helpless invalid, and I a broken man. But when the word love fell from her lips, I felt the blood start burning in my veins, and all the crust of habit and years of self-control loosened about my heart and make me young again. What if her thoughts were dark and her wishes murderous? She was born to rule and sway men to her will, even to their own undoing. I wish I might kiss your hand, was what I murmured, gazing at her white fingers groping over her tray. You may, she answered, and hell became heaven to me for a brief instant. Then I lifted myself and went obediently about my task. But puppet though I was, I was not utterly without sympathy 
When I entered Helena's room and saw how her startled eyes fell shrinkingly on the bowl I set down before her, my conscience leapt to life, and I could not help saying, Don't you like the curds, Helena? Your brother used to love them very much. His were. What, Helena? What these are not, she murmured. I stared at her terror-stricken. So she knew and yet did not seize the bowl and empty it out the window. Instead, her hand moved slowly toward it and drew it into place before her. Yet I must eat, she said, lifting her eyes to mine in a sort of patient despair, which yet was without accusation. But my hand had instinctively gone to hers and grasped it. Why must you eat it? I asked. If... If you do not find it wholesome, why do you touch it? Because my stepmother expects me to, she cried, and I have no other will than hers. When I was a little, little child, my father made me promise that if I ever came to live with her, I would obey her simplest wish, and I always have. I will not disappoint the trust he put in me. Even if you die of it? I do not know whether I whispered these words or only thought them. She answered as though I had spoken. I'm not afraid to die. I'm more afraid to live. She may ask me to some day do something I feel to be wrong. When I fled down the hall that night, I heard one of the small clocks speak to me. Tell! it cried. Tell, tell, tell! I rushed away from it with beaded forehead and rising hair. Then another's note piped up. No, it droned. No, 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 no. I stopped and took heart. Disgraced the woman I loved on the brink of the grave? I, who asked no other boon from heaven than to see her happy, gracious, and good. Impossible. I would obey the great clock's voice. The others were mere chatterboxes. But it has at last changed its tune for some reason, quite changed its tune. Now it says, yes, yes, instead of no. And in obeying it, I save Helena. But what of Bella? And, oh God, what of myself? A sigh, a groan, then a long, heavy silence into which there finally broke the pealing of the various clocks striking the hour. When all were silent again, and Violet had drawn aside the portiere, it was to see the old man on his knees and between her and the thin streak of light entering from the hall, the figure of the doctor hastening to Helena's bedside. When the inducements needless to name, they finally persuaded the young girl to leave her unholy habitation. It was in the arms which had upheld her once before, and to a life which promised to compensate her for her twenty years of loneliness and unsatisfied longing. But a dark shadow yet remained which she must cross before reaching the sunshine. It lay at her stepmother's door. In the plans made for Helena's release, Mrs. Postlewaite's consent had not been obtained, nor was she supposed to be acquainted with the doctor's intention toward the child whose death she was hourly waiting. It was therefore with an astonishment, bordering on awe, 
that on their way downstairs they saw the door of her room open and herself standing alone and upright on the threshold she who had not been seen take a step in years in the wonder of this miracle of sudden restored power the little procession stopped the doctor with his hand upon the rail the lover with his burden clasped yet more protectingly to his breast that the little speech awaited them could be seen from the force and the fury of the gaze which the indomitable woman bent upon lax and half unconscious figure she beheld thus sheltered and conveyed having but one arrow left in her exhausted quiver she launched it straight at the innocent breast which had never harbored against her a defiant thought ingrate was the word she hurled in a voice from which all its seductive music had gone forever where are you going are they carrying you alive to your grave a moan from helena's pale lips then silence she had fainted at that barbed attack but there was one there who dared to answer for her and he spoke relentlessly it was the man who loved her no madam we are carrying her to safety you must know what i mean by that let her go quietly and you may die in peace otherwise she interrupted him with a loud call startling into life the echoes of the haunted hall humphrey come to me humphrey but no humphrey appeared another call louder and more peremptory than before humphrey i say humphrey but the answer was the same silence and only silence and the horror of this grew the doctor spoke mr humphrey dunbar's ears are closed to all earthly summons he died last night at the very hour he said he would four minutes after two four minutes after two it came from her lips in a whisper but with a revelation of her broken heart and life four minutes after two and defiant to the last her head rose and for an instant for a mere breath of time they saw her as she looked in her prime regal in form attitude and expression then the will which had sustained her through much faltered and succumbed and with a final reiteration of the words four minutes after two she broke into a rattling laugh and fell back into the arms of her old nurse and below one clock struck the hour then another but not the big one at the foot of the stairs that stood silent with its hands pointing to the hour and minute of frank postlewaite's hastened death the house of clocks part two recorded by deborah maddock